If you have a Bible, could you turn to Romans 8? Romans 8. I'm going to read the exact same verses that I've read the last two Sundays. Before I do that, um, I have a, a picture in my mind of last Christmas. It was uh, the night before Christmas Eve, and, and uh, our whole family was coming home. We're going to be home, and um, our daughter-in-law, Lindsay, was supposed to work on Christmas Eve at the, uh, the drugstore where she was working in Barry's Bay, and, and our son, Nathan, was just, he was just so upset that she had to work Christmas Eve, and he... And he he, uh, he, he literally said to Lindsay, just quit your job, just quit, because he so wanted, he so wanted to be with our family. And they drove, I think it was a Thursday night, I can't remember, but it was the 23rd, they drove in that snowstorm, remember, that big snowstorm last year. And the whole way they're driving, I'm texting Lindsay, because Nathan was driving, are you guys okay? What are the roads like? Be careful, go slow. And they followed the snowplow on Highway 7, almost, I don't know how far, uh, to get to our house. And um, I came in the door in that snowstorm. I just remember grabbing my son and holding him. And thanking God that they made it safe and rejoicing in God that we had our whole family together for Christmas. And it will be different this year. And we don't know, honestly, how it's going to feel, but we have to walk through it like everything else that we have had to walk through in the last almost nine months now. I've been reading many books about heaven. Um, it's like I reached a point where I, I just so wanted to know what, what is it like where my son is right now. And I, I just was grabbing different books and reading them. And I'm, I've, got, I'm in the, I've got three sort of on the go now. I read one, they're all a little different. And I've got that mammoth book by Randy Elkhorn that I'm almost all the way through it. I'm just taking everything in thinking this is this is where my son is this year he's in the presence of god and nothing nothing could be more wonderful than that and yet we still feel the pain of him not being here and i've i've just i've said to many people if just even for 10 seconds i could see heaven just for 10 seconds to see where he is i know i would have so much more peace than what I do, but I know he's with the Lord, and uh, as I read about heaven, as I think about heaven, it's on my mind all the time. I, I'm so, so looking forward to being there myself, and, uh, and uh, that is where my, our son is this year for Christmas. Can I just say on a practical level, enjoy your families, love them, Embrace them, hold them. Just savor every moment that you get together and 
coming to this time of the year, it's such a family time, and do not take that for granted. Don't take for granted that you have, if you have all of your family with you this year, but it's such a precious thing. Enjoy it, thank God for it, and don't take it for granted. Romans 8 and verse 16, Romans 8 and verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, the hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's ask the Lord to speak again to his father and thank you for. Thank you, God, for the health and strength of this day. I thank you, Father, for the hope of heaven. I thank you, Father, for the blessings that you give to us each day. We thank you for Christmas and what it represents, Lord. The Almighty God, the infinite, the eternal one that we were singing about earlier became human, became like us, came into this world to meet our need and ultimately to go to a cross and die for each one of us to suffer in our place and then to rise from death and conquer death so that one day the brokenness of this world will be changed and it will be redeemed and we will be redeemed and we will enjoy your presence forever. 
And so we thank you for that hope of Jesus Christ and all that is entailed in the coming of our Savior into this world. Father, I just ask that you would speak now, that you would give me strength, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and make it real to us, Father. You know our hearts, you know our needs this morning. Each one, you know those that are hurting here this morning. And so, Father, we just look to you now. As we were singing earlier, break the bread of life to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been covering the topic, what good can God bring out of suffering? What good can God bring out of suffering? And I've covered four things, and I've got six, but there are, I'm sure, many more than six, but these are the six that the Lord has put on my heart. So the first one was suffering compels us to depend on God. Secondly, suffering conditions us to live eternally minded. Thirdly, suffering conforms us to Christ's likeness. Fourthly, suffering enables us to comfort others. Two more this morning, and here's the first one, number five on my list. Suffering creates an opportunity for Christ's love to shine or for the love of Christ to be displayed. Suffering creates an opportunity for Christ's love to shine. I want you to go with me for a moment to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we are going to come back to Romans 8, but just go to Philippians 4 for a moment. There is a verse here in verse 10 of this chapter. I just want to read the verse first of all. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity, that word opportunity there. Now, just to, to give you a bit of a context, some of you will know when you read verse 10 exactly what it is Paul's talking about. Some of you may not. This whole letter of the Philippians, uh, in a way, was a, a long letter, basically, of Paul to the church at Philippi to thank them for the financial support or fellowship that they had sent to him while he was or is currently a prisoner of Rome. And so Paul at this time as he writes this letter is a prisoner, as I said, of the Romans. He is probably not in the dungeon yet. He is most likely in, and we get to the end of the book of Acts, we see this. He's basically under house arrest. He's in a room that's rented, and he's there in Rome, and he's chained to a Roman soldier, and he gets into that in the beginning of the chapter, or beginning of the letter in Philippians 1. And so every day these soldiers will come, and Paul's chained to them. It's like a, a their version of an ankle bracelet, I guess. And he's tied there, but he has no freedom. He's lost his freedom. What, what is significant in this, so many things significant in it, but one detail here that ties into the financial support of these believers was that in those days, the, 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 the government didn't provide your meals for you. You didn't get three square a day and exercise and television and whatever it is that prisoners get today. You got nothing from them. If people did not, if family or friends or people did not bring you food, you got nothing to eat. You starved. If, if, if they, no one provided, the Romans didn't pay for Paul's rented room. Everything came out of their own pocket. And, and, and when you study history, it's only really in recent history, I'm not sure exactly how far back, but not that far back, that governments have actually paid for prisoners. Most places in the past, 
when you were a prisoner, if people didn't bring you food, you would starve, you would die. That's just the way it was. So here is Paul in the situation, and you have the Philippian believers who loved the Apostle Paul. He was instrumental in their lives in many ways, and we won't go into all of that, but, but their, their love for him is stirred, stirred for him again in a moment where they sensed he has need. And the key word to me in this verse, and I know the translations might be different here, but in my translation, you lacked opportunity. And it's like Paul saying, now you have an opportunity. Because now I'm suffering. And in, in, in the situation that Paul was in now, now they could step up and show their love for Paul and ultimately show the love of Christ to the Apostle Paul when he was in a place where he was in need. And if Paul wouldn't have been in prison, there's many reasons why I know God did what he did in the life of the Apostle Paul. Just as there's many reasons why he leads us into suffering, but if Paul had not been put in that prison, they would not have had that opportunity to minister to him in his financial need when he was there. But now was their opportunity. And in Paul's pain, if you will, in his place of suffering, there was an opportunity for this church to show the love of Christ, and they did. And Paul writes this entire letter of the Philippians. Ultimately, one of the purposes in his mind was to thank them for that and acknowledge that. And you read those verses that follow. And I love verse 14. He says, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. That word distress means literally a pressing or pressure. And I'm not, I didn't, sorry, I didn't take the time to compare translations here. But literally, that is the meaning of that word, to be pressed, to be under pressure. It is in the original, the word flipsis, which is tied to, if you do the research of that, it is tied to literally a form of torture that was used in that time, where they would put a person on the ground and they would start piling weights on top of them. Gradually and slowly adding more weight, and more weight and more until the pressure of those weights would literally crush the person slowly and painfully to death. Now that word is tied to the word that is used here where Paul says, in my distress, in my pressure, when I'm in this place of suffering, if you will, he says, you shared in it. How did they share in it? Were they sitting there in the prison with Paul? No, they weren't sitting there with him, but they ministered to his need in the way that they could. And they couldn't get him out of prison, and they couldn't fix the problem, right? The suffering he was going through. But they showed love to him. They showed the love to, of Christ to him when he was in that place of suffering. And suffering creates an opportunity for us to show the love of Christ. I have seen, we have seen, Jackie and I, Lindsay, our whole family, the overwhelming love of God's people as we have gone through this trial. I want to speak to someone who might be here this morning who at times you get disillusioned with church. Don't raise your hand. But there are some of you who may at times think, do people really care? You know, is this Christianity? Are people just going through the motions? Are churches, is it real? I'm going to tell you it's real. 
we have seen the body of Christ move and minister to us in ways that I couldn't even imagine would happen. And I would trade it all to have my son back. But as we are in the place where we can't do that and we walk through this suffering in our distress, we saw the love of the people of God. I could spend the rest of my time telling you stories. My cousin, David Frew, contacted me the day after from Deacon Chapel. And he said, what can we do? And I was overwhelmed. And I said, David, I said, there's no money for a funeral. I said, we don't have the money. Nathan had no insurance. And I said, I hate to ask you for something. And he said, don't even think about it. He said, we will take care of all of that. And that little chapel, along with some of the other assemblies in the Ottawa Valley, stepped up and covered that whole cost and more. A young man that Nathan was in a home Bible study with, Nathan and Lindsay went to a home Bible study one winter, winter before, got to know this young man. He's in the propane and plumbing business and... Um, Actually, Nathan worked the same building that he worked out of the company he was working for. They shared the same building. So he knew, he knew Andrew really well. And when Lindsay was thinking of selling her home, we, one of the things that would be great is if she had a new propane furnace, they had an old oil furnace. And so I called Andrew and I, he came over. I, didn't, I never met him. I didn't know him at all. He looks everything over. I get outside because we're like, is it even worth putting the money into this? Because... You know, she's selling it, you know, the things you go through. And Andrew, I'm standing outside and he goes, he goes, Ashley and I, Ashley, we've known his wife since she was a little girl. He says, Ashley and I have talked it over. He says, we're going to cover that. And I said, Andrew, I said, well, how much is it going to cost? He says, no, you don't understand. He says, we're going to cover the whole thing. And he came and he took that oil furnace out, the oil tank in a brand new thing, everything. And when he was telling me this, and I started to cry, and he's crying, he's, we're both crying, and he goes, I love Nathan. He goes, he was such a good guy. He goes, I don't understand why God took him. He's a believer. He said, but I know one thing, if it was me, and it could be me, he said, I'd want people to step up for my wife. And it's just amazing to see. I, you know what I said to him? I said, Andrew, I've never met you before. But everything I need to know about your character, I see in this act of love. And it was just overwhelming. I could just keep going. That GoFundMe that was started for our daughter-in-law, there was no life insurance, no mortgage insurance, nothing. There she is with this huge mortgage, nothing. And I remember getting off the phone with the mortgage broker, and she said, I'm so sorry. She goes, I knew you were going to call. She said, he had no mortgage insurance, life insurance. I remember just my heart sinking. And I remember Lindsay, when I told her, the look on her face. And I just remember, I just knew God would provide. And I said, Lindsay, you're going to see God provide for you. And her friend started this GoFundMe. And she was, I think, hoping to get $5,000. And it just kept climbing. And it just kept going. And Lindsay would read that, the numbers, and she'd start to cry. And we would cry together to see. And she's saying to me, who are these people? 
and she'd name names. Who's this person? Oh, they go to such and such a chapel. Who's this person? Oh, they go to such and such a chapel. And it was overwhelming, the Christians, and it were, there were others, but the Christians overwhelmingly gave generously to her. And beyond the GoFundMe, there are so many that have been so generous. I have seen the body of Christ show love when there is a need. And the suffering that we have gone through provided the opportunity for so many to show love. You know who you are, those of you who have stepped forward and express that love in that way. I've seen it, it's real, the body of Christ is real. It is an opportunity to show love practically when someone is suffering. It is also an opportunity for the gospel. I have had just incredible open doors with Nathan's friends who don't know the Lord. And I think of one in particular who is open and seeking and I've just poured the gospel in and I pray, and we've given New Testaments, and we've had open doors, and I have just said, there's an opportunity here when people's hearts are tender to plant the seed of the gospel, and I've done that. And I wish I could say that 10 people have come to Christ. As far as I know, no one has, but I leave those results with God. We just sow the seed, and we just keep praying that someday there'll be someone in heaven because of what happened to our son. And maybe there is already decisions that have been made that I have no idea. I just leave that in God's hands. But suffering often provides an open door for the gospel to be there because people's hearts are tender and they are sensitive in a way that they might not be when life is normal. And suffering provides an opportunity for the emotional support. I think I mentioned last week, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but every message, every text, Every email that people sent, the phone calls, and there were times I just couldn't respond to people's calls. But everyone, all of it was like a sip of water in the desert for us. And when we finally started to go out and meet with people again, the hugs and the overwhelming words of love carried us, encouraged us. Thank you so much. Thank you. On behalf of our daughter-in-law, on behalf of our family, on behalf of us, you shared in our distress. That is genuine fellowship. That is real Christianity. That is rubber meets the road. That's reality. And I said, if you're disillusioned with the church, you come and talk to me, and I can tell you story after story of the reality of the love of God's people. When people are suffering, it is an opportunity to pour in love, whether it is financial or whether it is messages or just words of support or whether it is practical help, bringing food, helping with jobs that need to be done. There are so many ways that you can show the love of Christ to people that are hurting. Your neighbors next door, when they're hurting, there's an open door there for you to show love in some way. Don't miss that opportunity. The people that you work with when they are hurting, there is an open door there for you. You're not going to fix their problem. Don't try to fix it. Just come alongside of them and show love. Just show love. You don't have to have the answers and you don't have to have the cheer up sort of thing. Just in their sorrow, just come alongside of them and show love to them. You know, that is exactly what Jesus did in the New Testament, isn't it? 
When you read the Gospels, and he could do things that you and I could do. He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. He could perform miracles. You and I can't do that. But what we see overall is that Jesus comes right alongside of people who are hurting, and he just is with them in their sorrow. And he feels it with them. And in some cases, he weeps with them in the sorrow. That's our Jesus. That's our God. That's our Savior. What does God think of that kind of love and that kind of showing? You know, we, Paul tells us in verse 18, Philippians 4, Indeed, I have all and abound, and I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you. And this is how he describes it. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That kind of love, when people are hurting or in need, that is a sacrifice that pleases God. We don't need to debate that. Why is that such a big deal anyway? Because, brothers and sisters, it is the essence of being a follower of Christ. That you show love to people in general, practically, in every way that you can, in the situation, but certainly when people are suffering, it is most Christ-like to come alongside of them whatever way you can and show love to them. It is being like Jesus when we do that. God is watching what we do with those opportunities to minister to people that are hurting. What are we doing with those opportunities? Easy to avoid hurting people. It's another thing to come alongside of hurting people and just show love. One of the books I mentioned, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, there's a little portion in it where he talks about the books in heaven. And I'm just going to read a little segment of it because it's fairly long, but I've just zeroed in here. He says, each of us is part of these records. He says, obscure events, words heard only by a handful of people will be known. Your acts of faithfulness and kindness that no one else knows are well known by God. He's documenting them in his books. He will reward you for them in heaven. How many times have we done small acts of kindness on earth without realizing the effects? How many times have we shared Christ with people we thought didn't take it to heart, but who years later might come to Jesus partly because of the seeds we planted? How many dishes have been washed and diapers changed and crying children sung to in the night when we couldn't see the impact of the love we showed? How many times have we seen no response, but God was still pleased? by our efforts. God is watching. He is keeping track. In heaven, he'll reward us for our acts of faithfulness to him, right down to every cup of cold water we've given to the needy in his name, Mark 9, 41. And he is making a permanent record in heaven's books. I love that quote. Suffering creates an opportunity for us to show the love of Christ or for Christ's love to shine. Number six, last one. I've saved this one to the end because this is, this is, I think, where we all need to get to in our lives, to put the focus on Christ. Suffering causes us to appreciate Christ more. Suffering causes us to appreciate Christ more. Go to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5. There are so many passages that I could turn to. This is the one 
that the Lord has put in my heart, and I think it'll make sense as I unpack it and connect it. Suffering causes us to appreciate Christ more. Hebrews 5, verse 7, he says, it says here, Hebrews 5, 7, who, we know who the who is because of the context of what comes before, it's Jesus, and the context after, we know it's Jesus, so the who is Jesus, and it says, who in the days of his flesh, when he was a human being living on earth, it says, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, in my translation, it'll be different in yours maybe, but it says, with vehement cries, or literally with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you have read this passage and you've studied this passage, then you know, I suppose, what is being talked about in verses 7, particularly in verse 7. But maybe for some of you, this is the first time this verse, or maybe you read it before, but you never thought about it. It was the first time it's like, well, what is, what is in this verse here? When did Jesus cry out with a loud voice and cry literally tears and weep to the Heavenly Father? To him who is able to save him from, and here's a clue to when it was, from death. I have no doubt in my mind that this is a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know how you picture Gethsemane. If you want to turn, you don't have to, but I'm going to go to Matthew 26 and verse 39. I don't know how you picture Gethsemane. Maybe you, you picture Jesus. I, I remember seeing a painting of Jesus. I don't know who painted it. And he's on, there's a rock, and he's obviously in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's kneeling, and he's got his hands folded nice and neatly and cleanly like this, and he's looking up with this kind of stoic look on his face, and there's this kind of almost like a halo around him, and there's almost like no expression on his face. Someone thought that was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I question whether they ever read the Gospels, if they painted that picture of him. Because when I read the Gospels, that's not the Jesus I see in Gethsemane. Verse 39, Matthew 26 says, He went a little farther and fell on his face. I have preached on this passage before. I have said when I preached on it, when have you ever prayed like that when you fell on your face? And now I know what that's like. I didn't know before. And I prayed on my face. And here is the Lord of glory, brothers and sisters, the God who created everything. Almighty, that we were singing about infinite, eternal, and he's on his face in the dirt of Gethsemane. And he's crying out. How do we know he was crying out? Hebrews 5, 7. 
We know the words of the prayer. And how did they know if the disciples were a stone's throw away? Because he's crying out. That's how they know. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know what is in here? Obedience. Submission. Surrender to the Father's will, which he knew, Jesus knew, meant suffering. That's exactly what he knew was coming. And we could get it all the ins and outs of what the suffering was, and it was this, that we can break it all down theologically, but at the end of the day, he was going to go through an incredible pain. And I don't know if it was so much the physical as the spiritual, but he was going to face that, and the separation, all of it he was going to face. And he cries out to God, it's interesting in Hebrews where it says to him who had, where is it here, was heard. It says he was heard because of his godly fear. And so the father heard his prayer, and Jesus is on his face, and he's crying out. He's asking that the cup be taken from him. And the father hears his prayer. He heard it. We're told he heard it, right? And so therefore, what did he do? Okay, okay, son, I won't make you go through that. That's what I would have done. I would have spared my son. I would have spared him, but the Heavenly Father. No. There's no verbal record here of the Father saying no, but there's no response from heaven from the Father. He was heard. The father heard his cry. I want you to think for a moment about the pain in the father's heart, hearing that cry. I hear it in my mind, my own son. But the heavenly father heard that cry, and there was no answer because he had to suffer. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. What in the world does that mean? Was Jesus disobedient? Did some? No, 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 no. The obedience here was what? It was the submission, the surrender to the suffering. He had to, here, let me, let me put it plain. Maybe some of the translations put it more plain, but let me put it plain for you. He had to experience suffering. He had to go through it. He had to walk through it because there was no other way you and I could be saved. There was no other way. Oswald Chambers said to choose to suffer means that there's something wrong with us, but to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. He said, no healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And so here is Jesus, God in flesh, like us, a human being, and he is going to feel through all the years of his life the same kinds of things that we feel with, feel and that we struggle with and that we face. He's going to feel rejection. He's going to know rejection. Some of you know rejection, right? He's going to feel and experience oppression. He's going to feel and experience hatred. He's going to feel and experience poverty. He's going to feel and experience sorrow. He's going to feel and experience suffering. He's going to feel and experience pain. He's going to feel and he's going to experience death. 
itself. We read that beautiful passage in Isaiah 53 in the opening this morning. One of the phrases in there that, for me, I've thought so much about, that Jesus was a man of sorrows. Alexander McLaren commenting on that says, Jesus was the most sensitive, the most sympathetic, the most loving soul that ever dwelt in flesh. He saw, as none other has ever seen, man's miseries. He experienced, as none else has ever experienced, man's ingratitude. And therefore, though God had anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows, he was called a man of sorrows. And grief was his companion during all his life's course. He understands our suffering and our weakness in it. In Hebrews 4, that beautiful passage at the end of Hebrews 4 tells us that he is a high priest. Jesus is someone who represents us, who sympathizes, who feels as one who knows what it is to suffer. He sympathizes with our suffering and with our weakness because he himself has walked through it. I love the old King James on that phrase. It's worded this way, that he is touched touched with the feeling of our infirmities or our weaknesses. It has touched him. He knows what it is. That's what it means that he learned obedience. He experienced it so that he can come alongside of you and I in our sorrow and our brokenness when we're hurting and say, God, you understand. Jesus, you understand. Now, we question why we have to suffer when we go through suffering. But I want to change the perspective on that. I want you to think about it this way. When we're suffering, I'm suffering, you're, whatever way, we question why we suffer, but why did he have to suffer? There's a, there's a struggle that goes on in your heart and going through something like what we've gone through where I start saying, God, what did I do wrong? Was my sin that great that I'm being punished in that way? And I know that's the enemy. I know that. And you wrestle with that. But every one of us could say, okay, I, we, I'm not perfect. I don't deserve. And if this is what is given to me, I guess that's the way it is. But what about him? Why did he suffer sinless, holy, righteous? Lord of glory, who condescends, who comes in, is born in a manger, in a stable, a stinking, smelling cave in the side of a hill outside of Bethlehem where sheep were kept. Imagine what that was like. And becomes human, is human, grows up as a man, lives a life where he's touched by all of the sorrow and the brokenness of this world. And why did he suffer? There's one answer, really, one word, love. Love, the love of God for us. The God who gave his one and only son. And the son who came willingly and learned obedience through the things that he suffered, surrendering himself to it, submitting himself to it ultimately, and in that love to what? To redeem, to redeem us, to redeem this broken world 
through the cross. To undo what sin had done. And only through his suffering and his death could he undo what sin had done. Ultimately to save you and I. What good can God bring out of suffering? Think of the incredible good that God brought out of the suffering of his son. Our salvation, forgiveness from sin, the peace of knowing God, a relationship with God as his child, as we are reading in Romans 8, through faith, having the Holy Spirit of God within us. We were reading in Ephesians 1 this morning in the Lord's Supper in verse 14. There's a word in there that I love, and it's a word guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of what? The day of the redemption when the purchased possession will be redeemed. That's a thought in there. Right now, we have just brothers and sisters, just the deposit. Just the down payment, literally, is the thought of that word guarantee there. A son and daughter-in-law just bought a house five minutes from where we live. Praise God. God has been so merciful to us in that. And they, and they, they bought this house and, and, and all the paperwork that they had to do. And you, it's just insane what has to be done now. It's worse than ever. And everything, all the boxes that had to be ticked and everything. And then they had their down payment and they put the down payment down and all the stuff was signed and everything was done. And it's like you own the house, but you still did, they still didn't have the keys to get the house. And then there was a day they got the keys. And they walked in the door, and they were home, their little home. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit that is in us now is just the down payment. It's just a deposit. It's, it's all done. It's the paperwork is done, so to speak, and the down payment has been paid, and, and, but with the best is yet to come for all of us. We haven't got the full possession Yet, yeah, the keys are there waiting for us. Someday Jesus is going to say, now's the time. Here you go. Here's the keys. Now walk into the fullness of everything that I brought you into. And I think of my son walking in the fullness of that this morning. And I think of a new heaven and a new earth that's coming one day when everything is going to be changed and the groaning of this world will be gone. It will be passed away. We eagerly wait for it. Did you notice when going back to Romans 8, how many times you've got this idea of eagerness or anticipation or excitement about the new heaven and the new earth, about the day of redemption that's going to come? And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want that to happen yet. I got too much to enjoy in this life. And you know what? I can understand that. I can relate with that. I certainly know there was a time in my life where up here, yeah, I want, I, it's, it'll be exciting to get to heaven. Oh, that's great. Praise God. But in here, I'm like, I got a lot of things I want to enjoy down here. That's changed for me. There's still things I enjoy down here and I want to as long as God gives me time. But I'm so eagerly waiting for the day. But God says either your time is up and he takes me home or Christ comes back. Either way, to go into the presence of the Lord Jesus and then to see my son again. I'm eagerly waiting for that day. Christmas, the glory of Christmas. Oh, you know, we could get into the whole, I'd, I want to be tread carefully here. But the glory of Christmas is this, as I mentioned earlier, shared earlier, that the almighty, infinite God became human and became 
small that he condescended to us to where we are and came right into the dirt and the filth and the sorrow and the hurt and the brokenness of this world. He came right into it, humbly, obediently, surrendered, and ultimately what was his destiny, suffering and death on the cross. Prepared to pay the price to redeem you and I so that we would have the brokenness and the sorrow and the death all undone eventually and be with him in heaven and ultimately in that new heaven and that new earth when that day comes. And he conquers, he goes into death and he conquers death and he rises out of death and he ascends to heaven. And we've got the down payment. Someday we're going to get the full possession. It's going to come. I'm going to end with a a devotional that was on a Bible on the Bible app that I have, and, and I, I've, we've just been reading all kinds of things about grieving, and I thought, I wonder if they have anything in the Bible app about grieving parents, and I clicked in, search grieving parents, and boom, there was a, a devotional for that, and so I started reading it. It's a woman that was writing it, and, and she, her son had died, and she didn't, I didn't see the details of when it was, but she names her son in the devotional, I've changed the name to the name of our son. But this devotional is more than just for grieving parents. It is for any who suffer or who go through any kind of pain. So it's for all of us. I'm going to end with this. So in this devotional, she says, I know you can't imagine a single day without pain right now. I know. To be honest, most days still begin and end with some stabs in between with a bit of pain for me, even so many years after the death of my son. It's not in this life that I expect to be free from pain. My heart is clinging to the steadfast scriptures where God promises to fix what's broken. Someday your broken heart will be no more. One day death will end forever. I love this. She says there will be no graves in heaven. When God creates the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no hospitals, no funeral homes, no cemeteries. Oh, glorious day. Can you imagine such a place? For a moment, try to picture a world with no accidents to steal life away in a moment, no bodies to break down and shut down, no cancer, no birth defects, no evil to battle, no addictions, no sin, no heart disease, no kidney failure, no rebellion, no murder, no overdoses, no suicides, no miscarriages, no families left behind, no empty beds, No empty seat at the table, no more pain, sadness won't exist, depression won't creep in, anxiety won't steal joy. If you believe in God the Father and Jesus the Savior, you can rest in the fact that heaven will come. Someday heaven will be your reality. Whenever I think about heaven and I think about seeing God face to face, I wonder if I'll ask him. I wonder if the question will still be on my heart, if it will escape out of my lips. Why? Why? Will I ask God my, why my child had to die? I don't know. Often I think heaven will be so amazing and perfect that I'll somehow understand how broken this earth and human life really are since they are separated from God. Losing Nathan will somehow make sense to me. Other times I picture God making room beside him, room for me to sit next to my father in heaven and have a long talk about my life, about Nathan's life, about our time on earth and how he used everything for his glory. 
I picture the Lord with sorrow in his eyes as he talks with me, his child. He shows me the bottle where he collected all of my tears. A book is opened that recorded every single day of mourning, every single tear. There are reasons. Some have nothing to do with me, but everything to do with him. I'll suddenly understand that all things on earth belong to Almighty God. All things happen for his kingdom, for his glory. My life, my child's life, my family, we are only part of his story. The ending of his story, however, is what my heart longs for. Eternal glory. No more death. No more sorrow. Until that day, allow your mind to be settled by a glimpse of glory. Try to picture the world that awaits us. Imagine the day when you will see God face to face. And then she ends with Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20, New American Standard Translation. It says this, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for the brightness that will, the moon will give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your, your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And the days of your mourning will be over. Our Father, you know each person here this morning, you know what we need to hear from your word through your spirit. I pray that you would impart that to us. Help us to be grateful every day that you give to us for the ones that are precious in our lives. And may we, Father, hold them closely and be thankful for every moment that we have. But knowing, God, there's a day coming will be in your presence forever. The sorrow and the brokenness of this world will be gone. Father, if there's someone listening to this that doesn't know you, God, I pray that in your spirit and love that you will draw them to yourself to come to Christ, to believe in him, to have that hope, hope that carries us even in the darkest of times. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.